while sick of brick and mortar stores being overpriced and over, understocked, this company started that they would deliver your things via the mail. It started as an initial public stock offering by Goldman Sachs and just went out with gangbusters. They bought 40 acres of land in a major metropolitan area to set up their logistical center to ship all of these things. They sold everything under the sun. Craftsman, Die Hard, Kenmore, you name the brand, they shipped it. The largest retailer in the world with the largest office space in the world. What if I told you this company went bankrupt in 2018? What? Amazon bankrupt? No, it was not Amazon. It was, in fact, Sears. You know, Sears was a company for over 90 years, and of course the Sears Roebuck brochure or pamphlet or whatever it was with all these items, that was a staple in American culture. The Sears Tower, the largest scar... Um, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Star yes, what skyscraper is what I'm looking for, David. Skyscraper in the world. And here, now in, in uh, 2018, bankrupt. You could write a book about what happened to Sears. The morale that went down, bad investments, overextending. In the 80s, if you said that Sears would go bankrupt in 30 years, the majority would not have believed you. But then, less jobs in the company, the stock worthless. In 30, 40 years, it had collapsed. Today, we're going to be told news about a nation collapsing. 500 years old. And within 40 years, from the height of their power, they would be taken over. You're going to see the words that are spoken about this nation shake it to its very core. It's shocking language. Language that they think was not true of them, but really what they had become. What would happen if the things in our life, the very core of who we are, were challenged? Said, those are no longer in fact, they're no longer because they're really not how you live. You say you identify with them, you say you live by them, but they are not true of you. What if those words came to us? Would we believe them? Would it cause us to do anything about it? Just as Sears collapsed in 40 years, just as the nation of Israel collapses in 40 years, as words come to them of their collapse, what will we do when the words come to us? Well, let's look together, shall we? Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, to chapter 2, verse 1. Please pay attention as we look at God's word together. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. 
For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a, a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them, that, um, them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned, no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in a place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. And they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land. For great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord endures forever. If you're just joining us, welcome. Going through the book of Hosea this fall and this winter. And here this book documents 40-year period in the northern kingdom of Israel. A very precarious time. And Hosea has a message that would have been very hard for these people to believe. That they are the height of their power. That they think they are good with God. And then they realize that they are going to be destroyed. Hosea is revealing to them that they are cheating on God. With other nations. With other gods. That the sacrifice that they are making. That they think that can get them through the hard times. Is not enough. Because they have wandered from their true love. How can God communicate to a people that are obstinate, that do not believe? How can he get their attention when they just don't get it? We see God starts with a very arresting experience. What he does is he gives an experience to the prophet. Not just what he has to say, but what he has to do. He has to marry a harlot. Four times in verse 2, the word whoredom is used. We only see them three here in the English. But in Hebrew, we see when it says the land has committed great whoredom, meaning Israel, it's actually using the word whoredom twice as a verb form. This is how bad it has gotten. And so, God has the prophet, his mouthpiece, experience this unfaithfulness. 
so that Hosea might understand the unfaithfulness that Israel has towards God in marrying a woman that is unfaithful. And then as we see today, as we go on in chapter 1, what unfaithfulness gives birth to. We see what it gives birth to in the children and the names that these children are given is the identifier of where Israel stands. How do you communicate to a people that just don't get it? That cannot see. Growing up, my parents housed students from the UW, UW-Madison in our homes. We lived right near the university. One of them, Patricia Hoops, lived in our home, and Patricia could not see very well. She had very thick glasses. And one morning, she was reaching into our sink, trying to feel for a washcloth. She felt something soft. And it's like, wow, that doesn't really feel like a washcloth. And then she put her glasses on and realized she wasn't holding a washcloth, but instead a bat. Shocking, right? Well, Hosea is going to have us put our glasses on to realize where we stand. That's what prophets do. Some of us live oblivious lives. What are we actually holding on to? What is our love? See, the Israelites thought they were living the good life. I mean, they were at the height of their power. But they were following other religions. They were worshiping fertility gods. Yeah, they might have been economically prosperous. They might have been doing well. But they were committing adultery towards God. What is good? What is the good life? Is it our happiness, our success, living your truth? It's really not dissimilar from the time in Israel. They were wandering from God thinking they were living the good life, performing his sacrifices, but not close to him at all. You see, when we put on the prophet glasses... We can see clearly what God sees as what is truly good. Just as the executives that lived or worked in the Sears Tower in the 1980s could not see the downfall of that company. Just as the South in the 19th century did not see the appalling nature of slavery. Just as in the early 2000s in Hollywood, they did not see the repulsion of the casting couch that the Me Too movement revealed. We are blind many times to what we're running after. God helps us see clearly through his prophets to help us see things that we do not see. And he's going to do that this morning. We're going to see that in his word. 
by the names he gives the prophet Hosea. You have to realize names of children in the Old Testament many times were named of happenings in Israel at that time. Something was happening, they would give a name that filled that event. The caveat is that it was predominantly a positive thing. They usually wouldn't give negative names to children from negative events. But here that tradition is turned upside down. Instead, the names that are given to Hosea's children are names of negative events or negative things of Israel. The first one we see the name given to his son is Jezreel. This is a very famous location for the Israelites they knew a lot about. Deborah defeated the Canaanites in the valley of Jezreel. Gideon defeated the Midianites in the valley of Jezreel. Saul, the Philistines in Jezreel. Jehu, a hundred years earlier, defeated Amri and his dynasty, a corrupt dynasty in the northern and, and Israel, a hundred years earlier in the valley of Jezreel. But now this name is given to the son. Because what's going to happen in seven years is that in Jezreel, Assyria is going to come and defeat the lineage of Jehu, the Jehu dynasty, Jeroboam. And we're going to see that in just seven years, the destruction of Jehu and his dynasty that ruled for a hundred years will be gone. And this name of this son is predicting what is going to happen to this dynasty. It's a reversal of a positive location to something negative. Of course, today is September 11th, 9-11. That name just is very clear in our minds. It makes sense if I named my kids the Two Towers... Before that had happened, that might have been a weird name, yes. But afterwards, it moved something that was kind of the height of our power. Think about what those names would have meant after that would have happened. That is the arresting name that is given to these children. Also says that, again, I will break the bow of Israel That was always said of other nations, that God would break the bow. Their very spirit, their very power would be broken. But now it's saying, I'm breaking the bow of you, Israel. Images of maybe a traveling trophy being taken by an opposing school, something like that, or the American flag torn in two, something that showed our power was broken. And many times that can break our spirit. Then the names keep going for the second and third child. For the second and third child, there's ambiguity of who their father is. Is it Hosea or not? And that makes sense. That here, God's children, Israel... There's ambiguity of who they actually follow. Who is their father? The first one, lo ruhama, meaning no mercy, no compassion, 
was that Hebrew word that was describing a mother caring for their child. Many times it was described how the Lord cares for Israel. And now he's saying, no, no mercy, no compassion. And now it's not just for the house of Jehu, but it is for the house of Israel. It is extended to the whole kingdom. Again, God is known as being slow to anger, abounding in love. But now he has no compassion. This is a deep rejection of Israel. And then the icing on the cake with the next child. Again, it shows about the weaning. This was usually a two to three year period. So if this was given to Hosea in 760 BC, seven years later would have been the time that the Jehu dynasty was following. And then there would be the succession of seven other kings that would be brought to power through assassinations and intrigue and all these things until Israel finally falls 30 years later. And here this name Lo-Ami, meaning not my people. remember Israel its uniqueness came by its connection with Yahweh that it wasn't their armies or how many people they had or their chariots or their wealth that gave them distinction and power the reason they were so great that's told to them over and over again through the Torah is because they were connected to God but here God is saying, you are not my people. He is withdrawing from this covenant. He is divorcing them. He is giving them harsh language. Again, he is identifying where they are at. They have been committing adultery. They have been Removing themselves from God, so God is removing himself from them. Let's put this in perspective. Imagine the news if the, we heard the Packers were leaving Green Bay. Imagine the news if Kimberly Clark said, you know, yeah, we've moved to Dallas and Chicago, but now we are totally out of the valley. There will be no more KC in the valley. Imagine EAA said no longer will we be in Oshkosh. These are kind of our identities as the Fox Cities. And no longer they would be part of us. Those would be shocking things. For the Israelites, Yahweh is who they were. But they thought their traditions, their history, their sacrifices... They thought that was enough. And God is saying, that's not the way it works. You have cheated on me so long. No longer will simply your land or winning battles or doing sacrifices be enough. You are not my people. What would God have to say to us to find out where we really stand? 
Will there be something loud enough, clear enough to get our attention? These aren't new things. Instead, we see in the New Testament, many people will say, Lord, Lord. But God said, I do not even know you. We're good at this course in American civil religion, Wisconsin religion. We have all this stuff. We've been baptized. We know the right words to say. We can say we're born again personal relationship with Jesus, all of this language. We have Christian parents. We might wear a cross around our neck, go to a Christian school. But does that really make up our relationship with God? These names for these people would have been shocking. They thought they were all good. But they had run after other gods. Many times when people preach chapter 1 in Hosea, I mean, you quickly want to just run to the end of the chapter. You know, where the language is reversed. But I think it's good that we just sit in it for a while. That many times we take God's grace for granted. Who is our lover? What have we conceived in our lives? Who do you call on? Do you only call on God when it's convenient? Are there ways you keep on living and you say, who really cares? No one will find out. Do you just follow things? Hey, this works for me. What is your true love? Is this church thing just a basic dance you're living? Hey, we sing nice songs. I can network with people. This is what just people do in the valley on Sunday morning. God is not fooled. You could have gone to church your whole life, but not known him. This is what it's saying right here. You can be a part of Israel. You can have the name. You can have the history. You can have all of these things, but you are still not a part of the true Israel. In the very end, I do not know you. You are not my people. You can be a part of the church your whole life. But you can be fooling yourself. And at the end, God can say, I did not know you. That's shocking. But we have to sit in it. And this is what happens. Israel is 
consumed by Assyria. The people are scattered. The kingdom is destroyed. But then look with me in verse 10. Yet, what a big word there, yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Well, here's what goes on here is that Israel is consumed, but in the future, they will be given new names. They realize that language, as many as the sand of the sea, that's, of course, language that was given to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. Think about it. Israel and the southern kingdom made up about 600,000 people at that time. But here in the future, you see what happens with this message of God. Through the scattering of Israel, the diaspora, through the coming of Christ, from Assyria to Babylon to Persia to Rome, the gospel starts to spread to all the nations. In a group of 600,000, today becomes 2 billion people that identify as Christians. God has worked in his timing, in his perfect way, to spread his name throughout the world to all the nations. And in that moment when Israel was going through that and destroyed by Assyria, they could not have seen what was going to happen. But God used it. 800 years later, Paul uses this same passage in Romans 9, talking about us, the Gentiles, he says this, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it said to them, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. I love that. Children of the living God. What a cutting word for the people at that time that followed idols that had no life to them. Things that would only fade away. Now he's saying, no, children of the living God. A God that is active, that draws the nations to himself, that appoints and destroys kingdoms and uses things for his glory that will one day use it for all the nations to know. Imagine, it's been 200 years since the north and south have been divided. No one was thinking that the north and southern kingdoms would actually come back together. But here, the promise is that one day they will be reunited under one king. And as we read about Jesus going into Samaria, places that the people in the southern part in Jerusalem said, don't go to that place, that was the northern kingdom. And he goes and he spreads his word to that place. One king that united the nations together that could say to the Samaritan woman, one day you will worship a place that's not defined just by Jerusalem. By spirit and truth. 
God's amazing plan to have Jesus be the king of all the nations. And then it goes on and talks about the land, that they would return back to the land. Actually, the language in the Hebrew actually uses the language of resurrection. Ezekiel uses the same. He says, I will open your graves and raise you. I will bring you home into the land of Israel. This is the amazing reversal. This resurrection language. That the dead were made alive again. That the lost would be made found. What an amazing foreshadowing of what would come. Of Jesus raising from the dead. Talk about just amazing juxtaposition. From the destruction of Israel to what will happen in its future. Smashed together. Hosea could hardly have foreseen exactly how dramatic this would be. The great scale that God would have to unite these nations together and that his word would go forth and there would be salvation. That one day Jezreel, the day of Jezreel, which actually is the same place where we see in Revelation Armageddon. That one day this eschatological end would come. And here's the thing. As we look at this over 2,000 years later, we can see more fully God's plan to take what happened to this adulterous nation and to use it for his glory in the end. There's this uh, French director that's done a lot of movies, and he kind of likes theological kind of thinking or existential thinking. He's done a lot of independent films, but in 2016, he directed the movie and wrote the movie Arrival. I'm going to spoil it. It's okay. It's been eight years, so if you haven't seen it by now, too bad, right? It's a science fiction movie. And it's about aliens that come to the United States in these, in these vessels. And uh, this French director is kind of using it as something supernatural, metaphysical, something outside, of course, our world that would come. And how do people react to it? And you see the reaction to it. It's kind of how maybe people might react to God, anger or frustration or whatever it might be. And there's this one, the main character, Amy Adams, that takes time getting to know these aliens, getting to understand their language and what they're speaking. What's interesting about the majority of the whole movie is you see the frustrations of her life and what she deals with. But really, those are on the back burner to the problems that are going on in the world Right? Nations are divided about how to treat these aliens and what to do. And it, the world's about to break out into major world war conflict. You see all these outside forces and how they react to it and the struggle and the pain and all of this. And you're consumed by that. And you're just focused on what's going on at that moment, at that time, with all the conflict in the world. 
But then something happens in the last 15 minutes of the movie. And it is truly arresting. And I remember, I, I see movies by myself on Tuesdays. Don't, I like that, okay? By myself, $5 Tuesdays, sitting in the movie theater. And if anyone would watch it, no one's, hardly anyone's there at 12 o'clock on a Tuesday, right? The last 15 minutes, I am uncontrollably weeping at this movie. And this is what happens. You see all the moments in this woman's life you thought were in the present were actually in the future. And the more that she gets to know these aliens, this is what the aliens do, they can see outside of time. And they reveal to her the future. And you start to realize something. That they are actually trying to help. Trying to reveal something to her. And when she gets to know them and have relationship with them and speak with them, she starts to see more clearly how they are using all the things that are going, all the chaos, all the things in her life, and how they're all being orchestrated for good, for purpose, for reason. And I, that's why I was weeping that they would care. She did not see. The world did not see. I did not see. For the whole movie, I was blind. But then at the end, my eyes were opened to the goodness that was being revealed by something that saw outside of what I could see. You must remember when you read the book of Hosea, and I hope you're reading this book. Hosea is not talking to Israel, the nation that's been destroyed. It's already been destroyed when this is all collected. Hosea is talking to Judah that has seen the northern Israel collapse. And he's trying to show them that they might not fall in the same trap that they might see God's goodness. This is my point, and I hope you get this. God shows us the extent of what our adultery brings so that we might see the glory of the grace that he has given God shows us the extent of what our adultery brings so that we might see the glory of the grace that he has given. We all have run from our creator, from our father, from our lover. And that has caused division. And we see that most clearly on the cross. But do you know who gets these names? That Hosea's children's names? Do you know who gets these? Our father's son. 
that not in the valley of Jezreel, but in the valley of death, he would die for us. That God would not show him compassion, but instead he would put on him our sin. That God would say to his own son, I will be separated from you. You are not my son. That Jesus would say himself, you have forsaken me. God gave those names to him so that we would be given names as the children of God. That we would be given these names that we could say to each other, that we could say to our brothers and our sisters, you are my people. You have received mercy because our Father has put on his own Son those names. See, God on the cross shows us the extent of what our adultery brings. But in his resurrection, he shows us the glory of what has been given 